0: So I heard of a story, and when I heard it, I thought, man, that could have applied to my children when they were small. And the story is of a young mother, and she's in the kitchen making pancakes for her two young boys. And when I say pancakes, she's using one eight-inch pan. So she's making one pancake at a time. She's flipping a pancake at a time. And her two young boys begin to argue, who's going to get the pancake first? They want to know, is it going to be mine, or is it going to be mine? Who gets it? So the two boys are going at each other. So mom thinks, this is a great lesson and she turns to the boys and says boys do you know Jesus taught a lot about this about loving others about putting others first I want you to think about Jesus boys and what would Jesus do in this situation so the two boys just looked at each other and the older boy goes I got it he looked at the younger boy or his younger brother and says you be Jesus (laughs) now it's too early for that The reality is that happens a lot in our Christian lives. We expect someone else to act Christ-like on our behalf. That rather than us doing what Christ has commanded us to do, it's you be Jesus. But Christ has set an, an example to follow. And this morning we're turning to John chapter 13, which is a part of John where we see Jesus washing the disciples' feet And now, don't raise your hand and don't tell me all the different stories, but I'm sure you've been in a church or at a retreat where they took out a wash basin, filled it up with water, and then had people washing each other's feet. My question is, is that what Jesus was teaching us to do? Was he setting up an ordinance for us, like like baptism and Lord's Supper? Was he saying that we should take out a wash basin and come in here and take off your shoes and let's wash each other's feet? Some of you are shaking your head saying, no, that's not what he was doing. However, there are churches that teach that. You might have been in one. And you might have even experienced something like that and come across or come away with a good point that that was a really humbling experience. Either washing someone's feet or having your own feet washed by somebody else. But do you know what's different today than it was a couple thousand years ago? I'm looking around and most of you have shoes on. And I'm looking outside, and we have concrete and asphalt and other things. It's not all dirt. But wherever they went before, they were in sandals. And when they showed up, their feet would be dirty. And it was a job to go and clean those feet. Anytime you read that they're eating in Scripture, they're not sitting in a chair like you are. You'll read they're reclining at table, which means they're on their forearm, feet are stuck out. And guess what? You don't want those grubby feet in your face. So foot washing was common. So this morning, if it is, in fact, not something that Jesus was saying 2,000 years later, he really wants his people just to take out a wash basin and wash each other's feet, then what exactly is he going to be teaching us in this text this morning? He actually speaks while he is washing feet. And in speaking, he tells us exactly what he wants us to learn. He's going to convey it that we're to take away three things from this this morning. One is humility, and we'll talk about that. The second one is holiness, and the third one is happiness. You ever read in Scripture where it says, blessed are they? It means happy are they. Happy are they. So this morning, if you would open up your Bibles to John chapter 13, we'll be looking at this passage of John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17 this morning. I'm going to go ahead and read it all together so you get it in in its context of what's going on. We read, starting in verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That is the passage we're looking at this morning. Probably very familiar to many of us. We, we know that passage. We, we've heard of it. We've maybe even spoken of it to others. But in what's going on, as we've studied throughout the Gospel of John, those first 12 chapters that we've completed was Jesus' public ministry. And now he turns to his private ministry of just his disciples. Chapters 13 through 17 is just him and his disciples. It's his last opportunity to speak with them. This is the eve of his crucifixion. We're talking hours before he goes to the cross. I think, what would Jesus tell them if he knows he just has a little bit of time left? What would he show them? What would he demonstrate to them? This morning, the title of the sermon we've taken notes is Following Christ's Example. But I want to be very careful with that title this morning. We have to be careful because there are some people that say Jesus only came to earth to be an example for us. And I hope you know by now, if you've been with us through the Gospel of John, that is not correct. That is not correct at all. His main objective was to seek and save that which is lost. He came to save sinners. And guess what? We're a room of them here this morning. That was his main mission. He came to offer himself on the cross, to pay the sins of the world. For all who would believe in him to have their sins forgiven, that they would be cleansed, that their sins would be washed away. And three days later, he would rise from the grave, conquering sin and death, and that his righteousness would be accounted to all those who believe in him. So not only would they be forgiven of sins, but also receive his righteousness. Jesus, as he walked on earth, he fulfilled the law. He obeyed every commandment. And when he died and rose, all of that righteousness was given to us as though we had done that. Now, I'm looking around at some of you, and I know you pretty well, and I know that we have not done that on our own, that we have fallen short of the glory of God, but Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. I say all of that, and some of you say, Pastor, you have said that every single week as we've gone through this study of John. Yes, because that's what this entire gospel is about. And this morning, as we turn our focus to an example of Christ, I want you to make sure you don't leave here just saying, Jesus came to be an example. He came to be Savior. He is Lord. But this morning in our text, he is leaving an example. And from that example, he is teaching through it. So again, if someone asked you why he came, he came to save. That's primarily. He came to give hope. He came so we could be forgiven. He came so that we would have eternal life. But we also this morning see an example. You see the weight of these? Savior. Way before you ever say he came just set an example again this morning we're looking at three things we're looking at a life of humility a life of holiness and a life of happiness now i know some of you would say pastor can we pass up the first two can Can't we just jump over the humility part and the holiness part and just get to the happiness part because quite frankly don't we just want to be happy but jesus as he taught flipped everything on its head everything that we would normally think that is right he flipped it on his head So, he's going to teach that happiness only comes after humility and holiness. That you can't jump to point number three. That you have to go in order of what we're lining up this morning, as he did. So, first point life of humility, looking at the first five verses of the Gospel of John chapter 13. I'm going to read them again, and I'm going to talk through them as we go through them. We begin in John chapter 13. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This whole week, this whole Passion Week, Jesus knew his hour had come. This is the time. He is going to die for the sins of the world. And now it is on the night before all that's going to go down, and he knows it. And he's, the same love he's begun with, he's going to complete and he's going to continue to demonstrate to them the Christ who came was a humble Christ, and the Christ who goes out is a humble Christ. He's going to continue to show them this. Verse 2 goes on and says, During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he then rose from supper. There's a whole lot there. It says Jesus knows where he came from. He knows his origin. He knows where he's headed, and he knows the timing. This is it. It's go time. And because it's go time, he's now going to teach something. Now, in the culture, foot washing should have been something that these gentlemen, these humble, as we would call them sarcastically, followers of Christ, would have said, oh, I'm here first. You know, I'm going to wash your bales feet coming in. Because it was contrary to the culture. No one would actually do that. It was the lowliest of jobs. Not even a Hebrew slave would be required to wash feet. Only a Gentile slave. It was seen as the lowliest thing. But if they were getting it, if they were seeing Christ in His humility, they would have volunteered to wash feet. But guess what? They're not. As a matter of fact, we glean from the other Gospels. Luke tells us exactly what was going on at the supper. Do you know what the guys are talking about? Who's going to be the greatest? Which one of us is going to be the greatest? Completely the opposite of what Jesus has demonstrated, what he's taught them, and what he's about to teach them. So in the midst of the the hubbub going around of them arguing with each other who should be the greatest, Jesus rises up. He stands up, and we read here what he does. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. He takes on the clothing of a servant, and then he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You ever had something happen where you were just completely humbled by what somebody does? When you know that you should have acted or done something a certain way, and someone does it to you, and you think, That should have been me. I should have been doing that. Well, I would love to say that's what we see in the scriptures happening to these guys. But instead, they are so wrapped up on who's going to be the greatest, they still don't get it until it gets to Peter. And we'll pick up on Peter in a little bit. But Jesus literally takes on the form of the lowliest slave, begins to wash their feet. And one after another, we don't see anybody saying anything. If it was anybody in that room doing that, it should have been them. But Jesus sets the example. Jesus humbles himself. In the midst of all their arguing, he takes on the lowliest role of the lowliest servant. For as superior to wash the feet of an inferior was unheard of in Jewish and Roman culture. That was unheard of. So Jesus being Lord and God, for him to do what he did, completely unheard of. He was the King of Kings. He was the Lord of Lords. He is that. And he could come to earth in any way that he desires. He could come and command all that he desires. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. But instead, he comes in complete humility. Complete humility. I like the way that Paul the Apostle describes this in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, we read, Have this mind among yourselves even death on a cross, to die like a criminal, even though he was innocent. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. What was that whole thing about? What was Paul describing him as? A humble servant. That though he being God in human flesh, humbled himself to be a servant of all, even Jesus speaking of himself in Matthew chapter 20 verse 28 says, "Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This is Jesus. The one who could command anything, anybody to do anything. He can command the rocks to praise him. He can command anything of all of his creation, and yet he comes and takes on, the lowliest place. These are the final hours that he has with his disciples. And what he does, he shows them again. This is what this life is about. It's a life of humility. It's a life of exalting others above yourself. i tell you this, it's a life that we get plenty of practice to do. Look around, there's many of you in here who have a significant other. And guess what? Every moment of every day, you get to practice it. As a church, you get to come together and esteem one another higher than the other, higher than yourself. Does that mean you have to like everybody? Like, you're like, oh, boy, I can't wait. I love that person, the personality, and we just totally click. No. It means instead I'm to put on the mind of Christ and to humble myself to come and esteem them. I doubt that you like all people at all times. Even somebody you think is fantastic, there will be times that you don't think they're so fantastic. But you're to humble yourself and to demonstrate humility to them as Christ did. Christ came to earth in humility, he served in humility. Even the example here towards the end, he's still serving in humility, washing their feet. Again, not even what a Jewish slave would be required to do. Jesus takes on that role he set the example of living in humility. Luke chapter 14, verse 11, this is what Jesus taught about this. Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you know what we naturally crave? Exaltation. (laughs) Exaltation. And Jesus teaches, if that's what you desire in this life, if that's what you're chasing after is to promote yourself, exalt yourself, make yourself feel superior than others, then you will be humbled. But he says, if you humble yourself now, then when you stand before him, you will be exalted. It is a life of humility. It is a choice of action. Listen to this. This goes so counterintuitive to everything we think. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 23, verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. What's that mean? You'll be the servant of all. You want to be great? Be the servant of all. It is not who who looks the best on the outside. It's not who says the greatest things on the outside. It's those who are serving. Those in humility that are going and serving others. Church, I want to encourage you inside of this body, think of somebody in the church that you say, you know what? That's a person I don't often reach out to. That's a person I don't really mesh with. I don't click with them. Maybe that's the exact person you're to live that life of humility with by reaching out to, of being Christ to them. You know, when we think of Peter. When you think of Peter in Scripture, he often suffers with foot and mouth disease. You guys know what that means? He usually he just sticks his foot in his mouth. But this same Peter would later write some amazing things. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, Peter writes, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You guys hear yes. that? What side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the side that's a recipient of God's grace? Or do you want to be on the side that he opposes you and says, I don't even know you? It's demonstrated by humility. I ask you this question. I think I could ask it. I think too many of you will get upset with me, but when you exalt yourself over somebody else, who do you think you are? I mean I mean just think about it. if I see myself as greater than somebody else, what do I believe about myself? I'm something right? <laughs> But I'm not just talking about me. I'm talking about all of us. Are there not times that you think, I'm not that person or I'm better than that? I just exalted myself. When I do that, I've exalted myself. When I look at another believer, look, we're a body of believers in here, which means we're to encourage each other in the faith. When I see someone else struggle in the faith and I say, I would have never done that, you know what I just did? myself. But instead, I go, I'm no better than them. Look, by God's grace, I get to be the pastor and up here preaching to you. I'm no better than you. We're the same. We're needy recipients of God's grace. We are all in the same boat. And we're all pushing forward to follow Christ. We're in this together. But when I, as a pastor, belittle you and say, there they go again, Woe is me, self-exaltation. When you, as a member of the church, look to somebody else and go, oh, there they go again, you've exalted yourself. Church, do you understand that God gets glory when we are united and doing what he's commanded us to do? That in humility, we're to serve one another, to build each other up. In Scripture, and I didn't put it in the sermon this morning because I thought it would be a long time, but there are 31 one-anothers of how we should be treating each other of ways to serve one another, which I believe Pastor Manning in a Sunday school class has gone through that list and probably has a copy of that if you want it, but then you're accountable for it all too. No more ignorance. You get the copy. These are all the one another's, how we are responsible to serve one another in the church, to no longer be exalting ourselves in self-exaltation, but instead to humble ourselves so that God The second part of humility, though, Jesus rolls it over as he's going through this teaching, and he's talking about holiness next. The life of holiness starts with humility, and it goes straight into holiness. Looking at verses 6 through 11, this interaction is going to take place between Peter and Jesus, but the disciples are all there. They're in earshot. They hear what's going on, and this is where we're going to see Peter again stick a foot in his mouth. And I love what Kent Hughes said about that. He says, Sometimes the only time Peter opened his mouth was to change feet. I thought that was funny. Foot in mouth and mouth, then another foot and mouth. But you know what I like about Peter? He says what's on his mind. He doesn't do it in a venting way. It's just he doesn't fully understand. To him, this is what he sees. And it gives him opportunity to be corrected. And when he's corrected, he doesn't get all upset. He's like, whoa, okay. And you'll see the way he just completely flips on this one as we look at it together. Look at me starting in verse 6. So Jesus is going disciple by disciple, and he comes to Simon Peter. And Simon Peter stops him. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet. What's he saying? Right. He's saying, wait, wait, how is it that you, being my Lord and Master, would wash my feet? Now stop there for a second. Guess what Peter had the opportunity to do before He could have washed everybody's feet already, right? He could have already been the one that got the basin, put on the towel, and went and washed feet. But now, remember when I told you about you be Jesus? And when someone else does, you're like, oh, I should have been doing that. It's not until this point that he's like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. How is it that you, Lord, would be washing my feet? Verse 7 says, Jesus responds to him. He says, what I am doing, you do not understand now, But afterward, you will understand. Guess what? Jesus said he's not going to understand, and guess what? He did it. But he did later. We'll look at that. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Like, it ain't going to happen. You're not going to do this. I will not submit myself to you in doing this. Wow. Now, good intentions, right? (laughs) I mean, his intention is like, you as my Lord could never do something so belittling. But do we ever tell Jesus what he's going to do? So Jesus corrects him. And he says to him in verse 8, he says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. He says, "Then, then there's no communion between us. There's no relationship here. Peter goes, what? Look what he says. He says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I mean, do it all. I I want in. I, I don't want to be cast out. Whatever it takes, wash everything. Jesus says to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Talk about this washing. This washing is a biblical metaphor for spiritual cleansing. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. David cries out in Psalm 51, verse 2, he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's a spiritual cleansing. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, God had said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols, and I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. Throughout Scripture, God had talked about a cleansing. It was going to be a spiritual cleansing over his people. Even as we go to the New Testament, we see salvation in Christ. We read this in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, that he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about a work of God, a work that is only of God that is of salvation, that he does the cleansing. And he's telling Peter, Peter, you've already been washed. You've already been sealed. Your sins are forgiven. But your feet, they got an issue. He's not looking at his bunions and his crusty toes. He's talking about a lifestyle of how he's living. He's talking about a pursuit that needs to be perfected, that a pursuit of holiness that he needs to be walking in. And when he falls, he needs continual cleansing. It's just those feet we need to clean off. You see, our aim as Christians is to be holy. That's what the command is. To be holy. To be holy just like our Father in heaven is holy. But as Christians, we're growing in holiness. If you are a genuine professing believer this morning, you should be able to look back a month, a year, five years, and see that you have grown in holiness, that you are becoming more and more like Jesus. If you look back to the day you said you began following Christ and you look the same, here's the good news. Start today. The Bible says, repent and believe. Turn to him today because there is no evidence of salvation in your past. This is the fruit of your salvation, is the transformation that you once walked in darkness, but now you're walking in light. Church, it's not a perfect road. There are times we stumble and we need to be cleansed again. Not for salvation. We don't lose our salvation. It's about what Jesus is talking about here, that as we grow in holiness, there are times we're going to come up short. First John 1.9, some of you haven't memorized. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This isn't another salvation. It's not like I need to ask Jesus, you know, please accept me and let me trust in you and seal me with your spirit. Unfortunately, about 140 years ago, we had an evangelist that went around and told people, you need to come forward and ask Jesus into your heart. And that was a practice. That's a really weird practice that many churches still believe in. Nowhere in Scripture do you see that. We're to believe, we're to repent and believe. We're to follow Christ. But there are people that when they stumble and they fall into sin, think, because of this practice, well, I need to ask Jesus into my heart again. Like, I need to be saved all over again. I need to be born again, again. Church, if you're born again, you're born again. You're a child of God. And now as you walk and if you stumble, you confess that sin and turn from that sin. That is growing in holiness. That what I just stepped into was not pleasing to God. Oh, God, forgive me. I turn from that and I keep following you. Isn't there great hope in that? Could you imagine if we stumbled and fell and you're done? Cut off? doesn't work like that. But for the believer, the pursuit is holiness. It's communion with God to walk with our Lord. And unconfessed sin in our lives hinders that relationship. It grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Genuine believers should desire to please God. This morning, if you're a believer in Christ, there should be a desire to please Him. If you're sitting there and you're like, is opening his mouth, words are coming out, but I have no clue what he's talking about. Then your response this morning is to repent and believe. Step one, repent and believe. And there's hope for you. But if you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, I know what you're talking about. But the moment I turned to Christ, all of a sudden there was new desires. I wanted to please him instead of myself. Then you're on this road. You're on this pursuit of holiness. Jesus continued to teach that pursuit. You know, this foot washing held a lot of Old Testament symbolism. The the priests in the Old Testament, when they were consecrated, when they were set apart as holy, they were bathed all over. Water was all over their body. And that was done only one time. One time it was never repeated again. But as they went about their daily ministry and their daily priestly duties they would have to go out and wash themselves, their hands and their feet, as a, a cleansing before they went into the holy place. Why? They were, set, they, were, they were consecrated once and for all, but then there were still defilements along the way. Is that not like us? That as Jesus has forgiven us, cleansed us from all unrighteousness, that there's still defilement in this world? That as we walk the straight and narrow on this path of righteousness, there are ditches on both sides. And if you step a little bit this way, Lord, forgive me. I turn from that. Step a little bit this way, Lord, forgive me. Thank you for putting me right back on. His grace continues to push us forward on this path. Christians are to pursue holiness. I've heard this argument. I'm going to share it with you. There are those who say, God doesn't really expect me to be holy. I mean, I'm only human. Maybe you're saying that. Like, does God really require that? I mean, th- does holiness even matter? Do you know that Scripture says that without it, you will not see the Lord? Without holiness, you're not going to see the Lord. And while God is holy, guess what? We are not. But something magnificent happens to those who repent and trust in Christ. You'll see this term in the Bible being in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. You ever seen that people even talk about being in Christ? What does that mean? It means positionally, I am no longer just Robert in this flesh. I am in Christ positionally, which means being in Christ, I'm also holy. That's how you go, Pastor. Come on now, <laughs> come on now. It's a positional holiness, but the New Testament emphasized a pursuit of holiness as well, a practical part of living out that holiness. That positionally, I'm in Christ. I'm in His holiness but now I'm to pursue living that out. The theological word for this is sanctification. A definition for sanctification is this, a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. More and more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. It is a work of both God and us working together. That's called synergistic whereas salvation is of God alone, called monergistic. Big words, huh? Synergistic means it's working together. We see this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure sanctification. This desire I now have to please God, this desire I now have to walk in holiness is because God is working in me. It's evidence that his spirit dwells within me. If you are here this morning, you say, I see it now. All that desire that's going on, that's the spirit of God working in me. Now I'm to submit to that. As my flesh wants to pull me back over here to the things of darkness, I submit to to the spirit of God in me and walk in holiness. And in that, I become freer and freer from sin and more and more like Jesus. Sanctification. This is our pursuit. Jesus, as he was speaking to Peter, told him, you're not going to understand this now, but you're going to get this later. You're going to understand it. You'll see Peter, as he writes his letters, man, he got it later. He got it really, really well the foot and mouth disease that Peter always sticking his foot in his mouth, all of a sudden started writing things that were amazing. I'll start in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. This is Peter writing. The one who says, you're never going to wash me. That's what he writes. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am am holy. Peter got it. Peter's understanding this. Paul understood it too. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1, he says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. what that means? We see it elsewhere. It means flee from sin. Church, this morning, are there things in your life that you're flirting with sin? and you think, oh, it's not that bad, guess what? It is. It is sin that put Christ on the cross. And now the pursuit of the Christian is to pursue holiness. I'll tell you what we're really good at, and when I say we, that's all of us, me included, is justifying sin. I mean, like, I don't know what you're talking about. You ever told the lie and said it was just a white lie? What does that mean? It's still a lie, right? But it made you feel better that it was just a white lie. Or you said, well, I lied, but I didn't want to hurt someone's feelings, so I felt better about lying because I didn't hurt their feelings. It's still a lie. We do this in a lot of different areas of our lives, and we try to minimize sin. Sanctification is pursuing holiness. No no justification, no reasoning, nothing behind it. I am not going to keep a reservation for sin. It means if, if this object over here causes me to sin, you said, get rid of it. Don't let it be around. Don't keep a reservation for sin. Romans six eleven says, you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means sin should not be an option for you anymore. Now I get it. You still have flesh and you're like, but pastor, I still got this, this old flesh. But it should never be on the radar of, well, here's an option for me. It's to go sin. My option is to pursue holiness. It's to follow Christ. That should be the only thing on my radar. And we read in 2 Timothy 2, verse 21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Why do I share that? Because I'm guessing this morning there is somebody in here who is in currently some type of practice that you know is dishonorable before God. You know you're living a certain way, you've you've accepted a certain pattern of sin. And the word says, turn. And you go from being dishonorable to being honorable. Turn from that and turn to Christ. Again, started by saying Peter got this. It wasn't just that one sentence that Peter said. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Peter writes, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like, a, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He says, you were purchased. You were purchased with the blood of Christ. Peter's getting it. Next chapter, 1 Peter two twenty four, he says, Speaking of Christ, as he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter, the one that all he knew how to do before was stick his foot in his mouth, he gets it. My life is to turn from sin and it's to turn to Christ. He says in chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Church, over and over again, as you see this pursuit of holiness, it means I must put this flesh to death. Now now hear me. He doesn't say commit suicide. He's talking about an act of the will that instead of submitting to my selfish, carnal desires, I'm going to submit to the will of God. Not my will, but thy will be done. Before we move on to our third point, just a little side note. The side note is that habitual sin that's never been repented of may indicate whether you are not truly a believer. i gonna say that again. If there's habitual sin in your life that you have never turned from, it may be an indicator that you are not genuinely saved. We read this in 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. It says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. This means habitual sin. It means that's your lifestyle. Not that you, you fell into it, but this is you. You're known as this person. It says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, before you go, wow, pastor, you're just going like fire and brimstone, and you're just like laying it on heavy. No, this is the reality. This is the patience and goodness of God that he would tell us these things of examine yourself. Do I see the spirit of God moving me in along this road of a life of holiness? Or do I completely dismiss holiness and think somehow I'm going to stand before God and say, we're good, right? The only way I'm good with him is based upon Jesus. And if I have not repented and received Christ, I'm not good with the Father. But when I do turn and I receive Christ, I receive his Spirit. And that Spirit will testify is about that. Church, we've talked about a life of humility. And I get it. Not exactly what we all want to hear. And then we compile that with a life of Holiness. Like, oh, we thought it was hard enough when we are talking about humility, but they're intertwined. When I humble myself, it means I'm not always thinking about myself. In fact, I'm not thinking about myself at all. I'm thinking about Christ. Well, if I'm thinking about Christ, guess what that does to my walk of holiness? Puts me right in line with it. But if I don't go back to point one and I'm not walking in humility, but I'm walking in pride, guess what I'm thinking about? Me, myself, and I. An option to sin. So it starts with humility, and then it goes to this walk of holiness, and lastly, Jesus is going to talk about a life of happiness. And you're like, can we just start there and skip the first two? But he's going to predicate it on the fact that you're walking humbly and holy, and the result of that, happiness. How many of you have chased after? Raise your hand. How many of you have chased after happiness on your own and realized it's not at the end of the rainbow? Like, you've tried, right? You, you've gone after the things you thought was going to make it happen. I did the things. The world told me if I just do these things, then I'll be happy. And I realized maybe I was for, like, a short bit. You know, like when I bought that car and I was so happy until that first door ding, and then I wasn't happy anymore. I was really upset. But I think all these different ways go after happiness. Jesus is going to teach it's a whole different route. We'll finish that point number three, life of happiness. Starting in verse 12 of John chapter 13, Jesus, it says, uh, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, uh, he resumed his place. He comes back to the table, and now he talks and says, do you understand what I have done to you? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, verse 17, blessed are you. Is that where it stops? If you know these things, blessed are you. Ah, there's more to that. It's not just if you know these things, happy are you, blessed are you, but it's if you do them. If you practice these things, happy are you, blessed are you. Well, what's he talking about? Because we have seen here he speaks again of this example of washing one another's feet. So anybody want to be happy? Is he saying go get a, a wash basin and start washing the feet? Not what he's saying. He's saying humble yourself. God and before one another. Esteem others higher than yourself. That's what he's speaking of here. This example he gave us is an example of a life of humility. That it's not beyond me to come into a church and say, man, what could I do? Oh, there's trash over there. I'll go pick up the trash. Are you above that? I sure hope not. You say, well, well, pastor, you don't know my qualifications. You don't know how many degrees I have and how many years of, of experience I have and I picking up trash? That's way too menial. It wasn't for Jesus. He took on the lowliest of tasks. So the question is: in humility, how are you esteeming one another? How are you lifting up one another? Because Jesus says, if you practice these things, happy are you. Happy are you. It's amazing how much marital counseling I get to sit through, and the biggest factor in the marital counseling is pride. That you have two people that come together and butt heads the whole time because both of them want their way. My way's better, no, my way is better, and boom, boom. But when they submit to walk like Christ and humble themselves before God to esteem each other, guess what? All of a sudden, there's unity. Wow, amazing just like Jesus said. He says, I've set an example for you. Humble yourself. Don't think you are above anything. Humble yourself to the point of being a servant. I love what he says here. He says this in verse 16. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Stop there. Who's our master? Jesus. You ever called him Lord? Lord means master, okay? He's our master. What position as master has he taken? A servant. He's taking on the lowliest of servants. And he says, and now us as his servants, we're not better than that. We're right there with them. We take on the lowliest role of the servant. Have you ever looked at somebody who you saw serving others, esteeming others, loving others, walking in holiness that you went, oh man, that's a horrible life. You look at somebody who's in peace, someone who has joy, All they care about is walking and pleasing God. There's no other cares in their life. It's to humble themselves. It's to walk in holiness and blessed are they. Church, there's no other formula. There's all these things the world tells us. This is how you're going to be happy. There's preachers on TV saying, hey, buy my book. This is your best life now. (coughs) Your best life now is to humble yourself and to walk in holiness and to please God. You won't find it in his book. It won't be there. James puts it this way. James, in James chapter 1, starting in verse 22, he says, Be doers of the word. Church, what does it mean to be a doer of the word? Well, it means to do it. He's going to explain it. Don't be a hearer only. Do you remember what we read at the end of our our text? In, In verse 17, he says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He didn't just say if you know him, if you hear him. He said if you do them. James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only. He says, you deceive yourself when you do that. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and per- perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be word is happy blessed blessed in his doing he's gonna be happy to be a doer the one who acts guess what that means it's gonna take energy it's gonna take intentionality to pursue that that as i gather together at the church lord show me how i could esteem somebody else show me how i can serve somebody else in the church There are so many of us who think of church in a a consumerism way. Like, what can I get out of it? What's in it for me? Oh, that preacher, he definitely preached a dud today. What are you doing on the way here? How are you praying? How are you preparing yourself? Is it, oh, God, help me to walk today in a manner that pleases you, a manner of humility, a manner of holiness, that I would build up. The word is edify. That I would edify the body today as I gather with them. Do you know that God desires to use you as we gather together? say, so, well, I don't have a formal title. You don't need a formal title. You have the best title of all. It's a child of God. You've been adopted. And now you're actively part of the church. In Luke chapter 11, verse 28, and I hopefully I won't throw too many at you. This is it. We'll close with this. We read this. Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. They hear it and they keep it do you want to be happy? My guess is you do. Most people, when they come for counsel and they want some biblical counsel, the first thing they say is, I'm just not happy. Jesus set an example. And in that example, he taught about a life of humility and a life of holiness. And by doing those, a life of happiness. Maybe you have a job, maybe you have a loved one that you you like to work hard for that employer or for for that loved one, and you really enjoy it when they say, well done. When they say, hey, I really appreciate what you did. What happens if your eyes turned to the Lord and saw that whatever you do, you're doing unto him, that you would hear from him one day, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's putting on the mind of Christ to focus, to go that way. I'm going to walk in humility. I'm going to walk in holiness, not by my strength, but by His. I'm going to submit to His work in my life. And by that, blessed am I. Everything I've tried to pursue in life now has been flipped on its head, and now I'm dying to self, walking to please God, and yet I'm the happiest I've ever been. I have the most joy and peace that I've ever experienced because it's exactly as Christ has taught us how to live. Let's pray. Father, quite frankly, we would much rather to our, our flesh hear something of a, a simple way to happiness, a simple road to being blessed, and yet we know the narrow way that it's hard. And that Christ sets this example of Humility. His entire ministry summed up in, in this action of washing feet, that he came and took on the lowliest role. And Father, we too are to walk as he walked, to live as he lived. And Father, though, for those of us who have turned and received Christ, that positionally we are in Christ, we are wholly in him that we are to now live out this holiness by chasing after you, by seeking after you. God, may it be that we are those who would submit to your spirit as you work within us to become more and more like Jesus and freer and freer from sin. God, as we do, we thank you that all this is put together and Lord, that we would have a blessed life. Happy is He trust in you, whose hope is you, who follows you. Father, I pray for anyone in this place today that perhaps out of all that was said, the only thing that was heard was the blessed hope of Christ, of truly knowing Christ, of not being deceived, but truly knowing him, that they would know they have a hope and a future of salvation is in Christ alone, that right now you would draw them in faith and in repentance. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for sending your son to seek and save that which is lost. And as we look this morning to also give us an example. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.